Welcome to the Shine Freely Podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Reeves, and this is all about human potential. I host conversations with people who are authentic, bold, and kind. Through their life experience, ideas, and research, I'm learning how to shine freely. And in case anything I learn is useful for you, I want to share my experience along the way. In this episode, I'm talking with a coaching colleague and friend, Clayton Boone. Clayton spent the last 15 years working in the wealth management industry with some of the world's largest asset managers and most successful investment advisors. A few of his career highlights include opening and growing an office from zero to nearly $75 million in 12 months for a multi-billion dollar investment advisor. Then he became the director of business development training and coaching for a top 50 national firm. Clayton points out that he didn't do this without failing as a wealth advisor for the first three years of his career. He finally took off when he surrounded himself with successful people and more importantly, invested in a professional coach and accountability partner. In 2022, he walked away from his leadership role at a high growth top 50 national investment advisor to start his own business. Now he runs a coaching and consulting practice focused on solo and next generation financial advisors who want to meet new clients, generate more referrals and grow their revenue. On this episode, Clayton and I talk about managing versus coaching, starting a business, working with self-doubt, finding work-life balance, and the role of authenticity in success. We also shared some of our own experiences in the great city of Austin around discovering the positive health impacts of alternative medicine and meditation. I hope you enjoy this episode with Clayton. Hello, Clayton Boone. Hi. It's such a pleasure to be with you in person. Likewise. So I would love for you to start by uh, introducing yourself. Tell us about your background. Yeah. So my name's Clayton Boone. I've been in Austin for about seven years and Texas pretty much my entire life, at least since the third grade. Um, married, have two little boys. One is five. His name's Remington. And I've got a little two-year-old boy named Lincoln. And we kind of joke in true Southern fashion. We named our kids after presidents and guns. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's, they're fun. But in reality, Remy was named after uh, Jerry Remy from the Boston Red Sox, as well as like a famous sculptor. And Lincoln is just a pretty fantastic name. And so we had to do it. But um, let's see. So professionally started up my career as a financial advisor, actually failed at it first two financial advice jobs. I fired myself by quitting before they could probably fire me. What, what do you mean by you failed? Like you weren't good at it or you weren't making money or what? I wasn't. I thought I was good at it. <laughs> Turns out uh, I had trouble getting clients and rightfully so. I didn't exactly have the type of network that one would think of. I was also 21 years old. And I was more so focused on making the sell as opposed to helping people. And I think, I think probably people saw through that. I was more of a product pusher, asset gatherer, as opposed to actually delivering financial advice. And 
hopped between two different brokerage firms because I just wasn't having the success in bringing, bringing clients in and, and because I wasn't able to provide value to them. So nobody wanted to really hire me and left there to go into investment sales for a couple of big mutual fund companies was fortunate to surround myself with really successful people, people that had the right framework of client first. And that was really kind of what started my, my journey that I'm on now, which eventually led me to leaving the investment management business and going to work for another financial advisor in the form of a registered investment advisory practice. So a true wealth management firm that was helping people with not only just financial planning, but cash flow management, tax strategies, venture capital, real estate, all the things that people's balance sheet touches. And it was there that I finally was able to hire an executive coach or a professional coach. And after surrounding myself by those type of people that were client first oriented, were very much all about kind of raising the bar of the people around them as opposed to coming down a level and then getting myself a coach, I finally to have success that I was looking for, which then kind of put me into this world of like, I really enjoy coaching. and that sent me down this path of going away from, I want to be a manager to I want to be a coach. Because you experienced the positive impact that had on you in your life. Yes, 100%. And I also realized that whenever I was a manager and leadership at one of these investment companies, that we had fantastic people. And we did a really great job of hiring fantastic people. And I came to, came to the realization that they didn't need managers. They needed a coach. Hmm. And so once I... I figured that out. That's when everything's really changed for me. And so. That's cool. Do you um, imagine a future where like um, organizational structures of businesses change to have less managers and or fewer managers and more coaches? Like, do you think that that's applicable to other types of business as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I don't think anybody goes to hire somebody to have to micromanage them. Everybody wants to hire somebody who's a self-starter, who's capable, is going to bring their own ideas and really change the business and, you know, move the needle as I, I put that in air quotes. And so I think that as a manager, if that's what you want for your people, you probably don't need to manage them. Instead, you need to coach them. And by coaching, what that means is asking open-ended questions, getting their feedback, eliciting their ideas continue to elicit ideas from them and then ask them how they would do it and then let them go do it. Let them try it and then ask them what they learned from it and maybe how they could apply it elsewhere. If it was successful or if it wasn't successful, same question. How can you apply this? Do you think that that's a little bit of a generational shift from like kind of how business was approached in you know, previous decades? It's possible. I kind of have that impression, but I guess I wouldn't know because I wasn't around then. So, <laughs> um, so, and now you are, you've launched your own business. I have. Yep. Tell us all about that. Yep. So along this journey of working at these different advisory practices, I continually found myself in a position of being asked to go into coaching and training with, with their people. And I sort of took a step back and said, you know, if, if these companies are going to continue to ask me to, 
you know, move into this position as a coach or do some sort of training or development with their people, I should probably just go start my own business and, and do that and work with a variety of different different companies as opposed to just the one that I'm employed by. Cool. Um, and how does your, tell us about your company itself, Ring the Bell Coaching. Yeah, so the company is called Ring the Bell Coaching. We are specifically focused on helping financial advisors in particular within the financial advice space. It's really about what we call the next gen financial advisor. And that is more so geared towards financial advisors who are in that kind of lead financial advisor seat, but really within the first five years of that part of their career. And so those are the people that we work with, as opposed to the people who have been a financial advisor for the past 30 or 40 years. We really want to work with the people who are in that seat for the first five years. Cool. So interestingly, I happen to have a lot of friends and colleagues that I've been talking to lately who are also wanting to start their own businesses. And everyone seems to be trying to figure out whether or not to take that leap. And it's obviously can be very nerve wracking for a whole host of reasons. So what was it like for you to go through that decision making process of trying to decide whether or not to take that leap? It was nerve wracking. I'd, I'd say so. The other part was just getting my spouse on board with it. I think. How'd you do that? I sort of one day just came home and told her I did it. <laughs> How'd she respond to that? I think she thought I was kidding at first. It's funny now to look back on it, but that's that's pretty much really what happened. Is I came and I was like, I quit my job. She's like, to do what? I was like, I'm starting a company, and she's like, that's swell. What a wonderful wife you have. Oh, so so supportive. You have no idea. Um, no, so. I, for a while, I'd wanted to start my own business, and I was always this person that was in my mind writing these business plans or having these different ideas for businesses and talking about it, but never never doing it. I mean, there's always this, you hear these conversations about ideas are cheap, execution's expensive, and that's exactly right. And so I never took that leap and I never did it because I was always, I was scared of failure and more so just if your business doesn't work, I mean, that's that's a pretty public failure, whereas maybe it's not as obvious if you're in a career and, you know, work somewhere for five or six years and then move and go somewhere else for five or six years. Like you may not have those type of true public failures. And so there's that aspect to it that kind of held me back. But there's also the financial aspect mm -hmm. that holds you back. I mean, significantly. And so since I'd always had this idea and then I just started to look back on kind of my my history of work and how I kept being asked to do these things and then finally getting the confidence that, you know, I could I can do this. And one day just quitting my job and pretty much, I mean, it wasn't like burn the boats kind of a thing because I have great relationships with both the companies that I left, especially the one that I, I just most recently left. And so I think it was just, doing it. And then the other thing that I, I've learned along the way is that this may not work. I mean, I really hope it does. I, I truly do. But I've also come to realize that I'm employable and that this isn't the end of the line for me. And so I wanted to try it because it was just going to keep nagging at me until I did it. Mm -hmm. What, 
would you say to someone who's currently in that moment of struggling to decide whether or not they should take that leap? What, what advice do you have for them or questions maybe even? Yeah. I think I would ask them, what if, what if you don't, Hmm. what if you don't take the leap and start a business? What is, what goes through your mind? Cool question. And when you were going through that experience of, you know, wrapping your head around this idea of the business you wanted to start, to what extent did the role of being super clear about the purpose of your business play in that process? Was that something you spent a lot of time on? Or maybe in your case, it was just kind of like immediately obvious. I think for me, it was more immediately obvious as to what I wanted my business to be whenever I finally figured out that this was, this is what like fired me up and was, I, I hesitate to use the word calling, but I got a lot of joy and a lot of fulfillment out of coaching and helping others kind of achieve new things. And so for a while there, I knew that I wanted to be a coach. I don't know if I fully understood what I wanted my audience or the people I wanted to coach to be. And then once I became a financial advisor and started to have success and have conversations with younger financial advisors about how they too can provide a really great client experience and also grow a business themselves, that's whenever it started to click to me was, those are who the people that I want to talk with. At first it was, I want to talk to financial advisors and I want to coach them and consult with them on, on how you build a financial advice practice that's, you know, provides a really great client experience, but is also rewarding as a business owner. And then even after launching my business, that has since evolved to where it's like, I don't want to just work with all the financial advisors in the world. I actually want to work with the financial advisors who are just getting kind of started in that first, you know, like I said, one to five to seven years of their career. So that's continuing to evolve. And, and so while I wanted to work with advisors as a coach, I just didn't know what set of a group of advisors I was going to work with. Yeah. One of the things I heard you say that I think is a key for anyone who's trying to figure out what they want to do with their life in general is honing in on what really brings you joy. Yes. And you've found that focusing in on this specific area really brings you a lot of joy and allows you to bring joy to other people's lives. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what I hope for, at least. Cool. Yeah. Um, what role would you say that authenticity plays in starting a business of your own? I think it's almost everything. Because whenever you're starting a business of your own, you're probably the only employee. And if you're the only employee, you're doing everything all the way from balancing the budget and using some accounting software to trying to figure out how do you get a domain name or how do you link your email to your domain name and like all this different stuff, like you're literally doing everything. And so I think that if you're not fully engaged and passionate about what it is that you're starting this business around and you're not going to have a great time and you're probably not going to want to stick with it. And I think it's that passion, that engagement, that 
fulfillment. I think that in itself is an example of authenticity because you're doing something that is authentic to you and you get to run it and shape it and build it the way that you want to build it. Whereas if you're trying to copy something and do it some other way, that's not really authentic to you. I think, well, I think you can be successful. Of course, I think you'll probably not have as much success as you could if you're doing something authentic and your drive probably won't be there. And maybe your fulfillment's not either. Because I think one of the biggest things about being an entrepreneur, especially now you've get this whole like great, the great resignation and all these people are quitting jobs, but I think they're, they're quitting jobs to find something that's more rewarding, authentic to themselves as opposed to just chasing money. Yeah. Which is cool to see. It's encouraging that people are realizing that the world isn't all about money and that life isn't all about money. No. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely behind <laughs> if I stayed employed. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, and maybe it's obvious, but one of the things I hear you saying is that if you think about starting a business, if your sole purpose is just because you think it's going to be a way to make a lot of money, it's probably not going to be fulfilling either for you or for your clients. Oh, absolutely. I think that people can see right through the, the BS of if you're just circling, cause you're trying to make a lot of money and you're trying to push some product or do something like that's I, I mean to that right there that point of point right there it's like people just see right through it and yeah. so i think that if you're instead leading with this idea of like i really believe in this and this is something that i think can help people and that's why i want to do it is because i want to help i think you're gonna you're gonna have a lot more success and a lot better time doing it yeah you know I have to admit, I hope it doesn't sound too arrogant, but <laughs> I think it's so obvious <laughs> and it's such common sense that everyone wants more joy and fulfillment and meaning in their life. People are so hungry for it. And a lot of the um, businesses that still have older people, I don't want to be ageist, but older people on their boards and executive teams are, are still in this paradigm from maybe the 80s or something where it's all about making money. And mm. the meaning and fulfillment aspects of business are irrelevant because the point of business is to make money. And this point of view, I find so extremely limiting to what you can accomplish if you add meaning to it like everyone wants meaning employees customers whoever they are and when you can make that the core purpose for what you're doing something meaningful that you actually want to uh have a positive impact on the world it's going to exponentially increase the power and the energy behind everything you do and to me, this seems really obvious, but it seems like it, it took a while for like the business world to catch up or catch on to this idea that like people want meaning. Yeah. I think you're also seeing too, that you do have some of these, these businesses that have made fantastic sums of money and they've helped people in the world. But a lot of times you're seeing now their founders are starting their own foundations mm -hmm. and they're leaving these businesses to run these foundations because they're in search of that additional meeting that maybe they weren't getting from their business, but they're getting from helping others. Yeah. And so I think you still have 
you know, definitely a subset of people out there who have started businesses to only make money and that's still where they're at. And then I think you also have some people who've moved past that, have started these foundations, and now I see the business as a tool to generate money to fund meaning mm-hmm. for others. But I think to your point that a lot of people are starting to, especially I think coming out of the pandemic, are starting to reassess how much how much money do I really need mm-hmm. to be happy? Or is it about is it about something else? And that was another one of the exercises I went through was I could continue down this path whenever I was working for one of these asset managers and keep getting promoted and keep getting additional compensation and bonuses and title and things like that. But at the sacrifice of that was my time with my family and friends. And so as this was kind of coming up for me with these different kind of like promotions and titles, was more travel, I was gonna lose control of my calendar. And so eventually what I realized is I don't need more money to go buy more stuff. (laughs) Like I don't. And instead what I need is enough money to be comfortable and to be able to support the things that I'm passionate about, both either philanthropically, friends, family, whatever that is. But at the same time, I wanna have more time at home to have balance and be me and be with my friends and be with my family and and those other things. And so then I went on this search of, okay, so how much do I need? And can I find a job that pays me that while at the same time increases the amount of time that I'm not doing these other kind of professional work things. And so I went from looking at, I need to maximize my income and always going up and to the right as more of, I need to get paid higher from an hourly wage standpoint. Mm -hmm. And once I made that shift is, was one of the pivotal things in which I decided to leave the asset management business and go into the the advice business and then eventually start my own company. On the um, topic of like work-life balance, is that something that you intend to include in your coaching for advisors? Totally. I think with coming out of the pandemic, a lot of, and the invention of, I mean, we've always had video meetings, but now with video meetings being more prevalent, I think there's a habit or a possibility for anybody in any profession to just stack Zoom meetings, Mm. you know? Oh my God, I'm already exhausted (laughs) just imagining it. (laughs) I mean, there are days in which I think people can have eight video calls right on top of one another. Yeah. And if we were all in an office and in person, you would not have eight meetings in a day. Maybe you would if you were in certain levels, but not everybody. And I feel like a majority of everybody's experience in their professional lives, if they're working in some sort of corporate business or whatever, have for the past two years had on average four to six Zoom meetings in a day. And (laughs) right, like that's exhausting. Like you get home and you're just, you're not happy. Like you're not in a good space. If all you've done is sat there on a video and you've probably got neck cramps and you're like, just like, oh, like, and then on top of that, if you're working from home, you no longer have that, that 10 or 15 or half an hour in the car to like decompress before you go and you see, you know, the people that truly love you. 
Yeah. And then what what I also noticed during the pandemic was like any kind of activity or organization that you're involved in outside of work, then they want to start having Zoom meetings just to stay connected and stay in community. And I'm like, no way. I'm done with Zoom. I'm I'm Zoomed out. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I hate to to like call it out of Zoom or whatever. It's just like, I'm just, I'm, I'm out. Like I'm done with all these different meetings and it is from the video, the video fatigue. And so I think from a balance perspective with financial or like just with the people that I coach and that I get to work with, it is about just saying the realization of like, it's okay to space these out. And a lot of times the clients that I work with are like, I can't, they're client meetings. It's like, that's great how can we think about it differently as in are there activities and things that you're that you're doing that maybe you don't need to be doing and getting that off your plate so that you can create space to go do the other things that give you fulfillment give you energy because if you have energy and you have fulfillment then you're going to show up 10 times more better for the people you're interacting with on a day-to-day basis and in order to create that kind of that that flywheel that exponential outcome you've got to get rid of the stuff that takes away and at the time whenever you're in it a lot of people i talk with don't realize just what those activities are that's taking away from them until we start to label them write them down and then it's just a matter of okay what's the trade-off like would you rather be doing these things that limit your energy and bring you down relative to these things that fulfill you and bring you up and I like to say like nine out of 10 times, they say I'd rather be doing the things yeah. that. Only and, nine out of 10? I would I'm think like, it'd be 10 out of 10. You know, you've always got like the random person. I'm <laughs> like, well, I, I, I can't let somebody. And then that's a whole control issue. And we got yeah. other things to talk about. But it's, and so I think, yes, balance is definitely important because it's all about with balance, you show up better in other aspects of your life. And I think people lose sight of that whenever they're in it. Yeah. To what extent does vulnerability play an important role in taking on these types of risks and challenges or maybe taking a leap to start your own business? I think it's just as important as, as authenticity. Whenever you start a business, I think there could be a, a side of me that when people ask me, how is business going? And there's a side of me that wants to say, fantastic, it's great, I'm crushing it. Like all of that and that's not really being vulnerable the reality of it is this it's going better than i thought am i some like massive success and like i'm gonna have to hire all these other people to come work with me no not yet do i still have self-doubt at times absolutely it rears its ugly head and things like that but i think that's just human nature and so i've gotten to the point now when people ask me how's business it's good it's sustaining itself i'm happy with whether where it's at but at times, like I still doubt myself on if this is, if this is truly what I going to work, you know, I believe it is. And that's why I'm continuing it. But there's times when that shows up, but I also think with relationships, you've got to be vulnerable and willing to share if you want to see them grow. How do you work with self-doubt? Like me personally, yeah. or, or what have you learned about it that has been helpful? I've learned. I learned that I have a lot more self-doubt when I'm hungover. <laughs> this very practical wisdom right there. Yeah, yeah. I've come That's to this real, realization. We just, uh, this past weekend was ACL here in Austin. And I was 
so lucky that one of my neighbors had an extra wristband and and he stopped by the house and gave it to me. So I got to go see Red Hot Chili Peppers on Sunday evening. Oh, sweet. Yeah, it was like out of nowhere. Um, just knocked on my door and he I had seen him earlier in the day. And I was like, yeah, I didn't get to see Red Hot Chili Peppers last weekend. Kate saw, saw them and I saw Pink, which by the way, Pink puts on a fantastic show. Awesome. Um, I was like, but in hindsight, we should have flipped because I think Kate would have enjoyed Pink more than um, I would have and vice versa with Red Hot Chili Peppers. So anyways, he stops at my house and is like, here's a wristband, go see Red Hot Chili Peppers. He had an extra one and I was like, awesome. Sweet. So needs to say, I went down there and as one does at music festivals, you crack a couple seltzers because it's 90 degrees here still. And the next morning I woke up and I was a little bit kind of sluggish, a little bit hungover, not as motivated as usual and things like that. And that's whenever I have found myself doubt generally creeps in is because how I'm interesting not, yeah and when you're tired and when you're tired yeah. and things like that so I've, I've come to realize sleep is pretty important and so is self-care and taking care of myself but usually whenever that does creep in i've gotten to the point now that i i talk about it with my my really supportive spouse i'm sure she loves it whenever i'm like i don't know and she's like really because you quit your job to go do this <laughs> <laughs> she's like i'm not the person you tell you don't know um but like she gets it. And I think other other people I've talked to that have started their own businesses and have now had success, it's like, does this go away? And they're like, no, not really. Um, no matter how successful you are, it's still always there of like, am I, am I good enough or whatever? But at the same time, I realize that's a lot of motivation that's there too. Um, yeah, I've... <laughs> I've, uh, it's making me think with this podcast, I was just talking to my family and they were asking me after I had recorded a podcast episode, you know, they're like, well, how did it go? How do you feel about it? And I was like, you know, I have learned that every single time I record a podcast episode afterwards, I have this feeling like, ah, oh, shit, that was so terrible. Like no one's going to want to listen to that. That was so dumb. People are going to think I'm dumb for posting something like this every single time, a hundred percent of the time. So now... I, it's become so familiar to me that I'm just like, oh, look, there's that feeling again. And I've learned that I don't really have to take you seriously and I can greet you when you arrive. And now you can have a seat over there because we're not going to pay a whole lot of attention to you, but you're welcome to be in the room with us, <laughs> you know? Sounds <laughs> like you've named your, your yeah. self-doubt person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm giving mine a name. His name's Jim. It's very helpful. Like when you can learn to not fight the feelings that you don't like, you know, you just like, yeah, just... That's fine. Just sit in the corner over there. No problem. Yeah. It's like, I'll, I'll talk to you later, Jim. Yeah. yeah. Maybe not. We'll see. But How'd you come up with the name Jim? It was given to me because at one point in my life, I had a mustache for like a whole three days. <laughs> and I know that people can't see me right now, but I've got like a, sometimes people call me like Captain Blackbeard because I have this like <laughs> thick black wiry beard it's like not like really that thick or that big but anyways whenever i shave it in a mustache it looks pretty pretty awful <laughs> and, i'm glad you can be honest about that yeah and um my dad's name is james and occasionally we call him jimbo and then i just think of the name jimbo as just being somebody with like a really bad mustache <laughs> and which then led to just being called jim and so that's awesome i love this idea of like um, you know, naming this self-doubt in a way that's playful and not like, you know, dark and scary. And it just reminds you of like, 
what a joke the whole thing is. And I mean, I yeah. always say life is a joke, but I mean that in like, a, it's playful, it's fun, and it's an exciting adventure. Yeah, like he's there and he's not gonna take over. And so that's fine, but. um. So yeah, maybe you've already covered it, but you are highly qualified, highly intelligent, disciplined, competent, like you have all of everything you need to be successful. And there's no reason why a person like you should feel self-doubt because you have it all. And yet this, um, is it fair to say, is this the same thing as imposter syndrome that you experience? Probably. And thank you for saying all those wonderful things. I should <laughs> of course. put you as like a hype person on my website or something. <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, to your point, like in the, in the profession that I coach to the financial advisors, the two biggest credentials that, that they can chase are the chartered financial analyst, the CFA and the certified financial planner designation, the CFP. I have both of those. I've been a financial advisor. I've opened an office. I've grown a book of business. I've been in a, a successful investment management, external wholesaler went from being on the inbound gate where you got phone calls for financial advisors, like literally you're like tethered to a desk with like a headset and you're, it beeps in your ear and you're like Clayton Boone. And um, going from that entry level position all the way to the ranks of like an external salesperson and traveling in the field and entertaining clients and doing all of that. Like I've done all that stuff, but yeah, even, even with that, I still, at times feel like, yeah, the imposter syndrome. It's this whole like fake it till you make it. Hmm. And Do you think it's a worthwhile or meaningful goal to try to overcome, overcome as in like get rid of imposter syndrome? I don't, I don't. I think, I think that with imposter syndrome, you're always approaching things with like a beginner's mind. Mm, nice. And so you're, you're open to learning and hearing different perspectives and iterating all in the, all in the chase to be better and be more impactful. Whereas I think that if I were to get away from this idea of, am I doing enough to continue to bring value and just become complacent? I think that that's whenever you stop growing. So I would say, yeah, the imposter syndrome's there, but it can also be a, a benefit. Yeah, be useful, serve some practical function. That's cool. Um, this is kind of just big open-ended question. What has all of this journey that you've been on taught you about yourself? You've um, already mentioned several things actually, but. Yeah. What has it taught me about myself? I was gonna say that I'm not as great at being a podcast person, uh, interviewee as I thought I would be. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the imposter syndrome. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's see. No, what has it taught me about myself? Um, it has taught me that it's okay to not know exactly what you're doing. It's okay to not know exactly how to do it. And it's okay to put out something that's not exactly perfect. That's... That's been probably the funnest thing that I kind of committed to. Um, I think in one of my early podcast episodes, well, they're all early still, but uh, I was saying that I made this conscious decision that I want to be willing to be bad at something in front of other people. 
Because like I never learned to play sports because I was too embarrassed to like go through the phase of being bad at it in front of people in order to learn to be good at it. And I was just like, you know what? With this podcast, I'm just going to like decide that I'm willing to be bad at it at first. And like I'm willing to not only willing, but actually find it super interesting and meaningful to like allow both for myself and for others to allow other people to observe my process of learning and getting better and making mistakes and you know all of that i think it's totally fascinating like why not let people everyone's experiencing all of those things like why not just open our windows to each other and let each other see how it's all working and i think it's in some respect it it make it definitely makes you more approachable and with that approachability, there's vulnerability because you're like, hey, this may not be that great, but I'm still going to try it. And that's great. And what just popped into my head is I've <laughs> received feedback at work in the past from people who know me very well and trust me a lot. I was filling out one of these like self-assessments at the end of the year and I got to the part about rating my approachability. You know, I was like, do other people find you approachable? I turned to my friend. It's like, hey, am I approachable? She just laughed. <laughs> She's like, I think some people are intimidated by you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what do I do about that? Um, and maybe it was because I had this habit of not wanting to be vulnerable and not wanting to be bad at things in front of other people. And maybe that was part of what was making me seem not approachable for others. Yeah, it's I think it's definitely possible. Then, yeah, I find that if you're willing to like be bad at something in front of people that are looking up to you in some respect, I think it allows them the ability to kind of see that like, I think they're great and I think they're fantastic, but they don't have everything all together like I thought they did. And you know what? I think that I'm gonna go talk to them because now I'm not as scared as I was. Yeah. But I could be completely wrong, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> If someone starts some kind of endeavor and they start to have this imposter syndrome creep in, they start to think like, oh no, like this is failing. It's not as successful as I thought it was going to be. Um, I, it might not work. How do you figure out kind of like when to either shift or even throw in the towel together and recreate a whole new plan versus when to be like, I got to keep going because how do you figure that out? I think that's really hard to figure out because on one hand, you don't, you don't want to try to give up on something before you give it time to work. And a lot of times things don't work out immediately. And like, I think of, for example, writing content or creating content, whenever you first put it out there, you're sort of judging on like how many views or clicks or likes and things of that nature. And at first, I think there's this roller coaster of like, it doesn't come as quickly or up to the expectation that you've set. And so sometimes people have the propensity to say, well, this doesn't work after like doing something two or three times and not getting the expectation. I'm just going to, I'm going to iterate around it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to tinker with it. And I'm guilty of doing that type of stuff. And they don't give time for it to work out. But then on, there is on one hand, it's kind of like, well, this actually isn't working. 
and I've stuck with it for a while. So I think maybe it comes down to just how much time they gave to doing it. Do you think that there is some usefulness in identifying these metrics or indicators in advance so that um, you can rely on those to determine whether or not you're, you know, I guess, quote unquote, failing and needing to change directions or shift something about what you're doing um, and therefore reduce the likelihood that it's going to be your imposter syndrome that causes you to give up too soon? Does that make sense? Or is that too complicated of a question? <laughs> I think what you're saying is, how do you not let self-doubt make you abandon something before you've given her enough time to Thank come you. to fruition? Thank you so much. That's exactly what I want to ask you. <laughs> There's this really interesting book called Grit, and it's by Angela Duckworth. And she found that the measure of success for people going into... I think it was, well, I think it's like army ranger school wasn't exactly the level of education or success that they've had elsewhere in their careers as much as it was how willing they were to stick with something, even if they thought they weren't doing well at it or didn't like it. And so I think to your point, to keep self-doubt from coming in, and canceling something that may be too soon because you haven't given enough time really is maybe to say like, I'm going to do this for 90 days. And then at the end of 90 days, if I don't have a level of success and then define what that is and don't make it something crazy, like, you know, I'm going to be a millionaire in 90 days and I'm going to do that by becoming a social media influencer or something like that, like make it something reasonable. But anyways, Set a time frame around it, 90 days, 180 days, a year, whatever time frame that is, stick to that time frame and then have a way to measure whether or not it was successful. And I think to your point, I think you figure that out before you start down a path. And then the grit comes in of can you stick with that for that predetermined amount of time that you said? Mm -hmm. And then you can walk away from it at the end of that time saying, yep, like I saw it through or I did not see it through. And the reason why it didn't work was because of X, Y, and Z. So when you are coaching these next-gen financial advisors, to what extent or what amount of time and focus is given to working on issues like confidence and self-doubt versus the actual you know, business tools and strategies that they need to succeed? I would say, so most of the time my conversations are 45 minutes to 60 minutes. And so say we're going to talk for 60 minutes. About the first 15 minutes is usually trying to figure out what do they want to talk about? What's on their mind? What kind of goals they have? How do we know if you've achieved that goal? And what are the next steps that they got to, the next small step they got to take to move towards that goal? And as we go through that conversation or, or that path, it could then be that the next 30 minutes is actually spent talking about those internal blocks that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then the last 15 minutes of the session is talking really about, all right, what are you going to do? How do you want to be held accountable? What does accountability look like? And so I would say half the time, almost over half the time, it's actually spent talking about the internal blocks as to why somebody doesn't think they can do something as opposed to, I don't know how to do it or the external. What if 
um, it seems to you that someone is having some internal blocks and they are not aware of those internal blocks and they're also not showing any interest in discussing or working on any of those internal blocks. Do you find it helpful to encourage people in those moments to somehow open up to doing that type of work? Or do you think it has to be like, they have to decide and come to you asking for that type of thing? Looking for advice for myself actually on this question, so. I think it has to depend with the relationship and how long you've been able to work with them. Uh And so what I find is that if, if someone is being forced into coaching with me, usually they have an immediate wall up and they don't want to talk about the internal blocks or they come up with, with reasons as to why X, Y, and Z doesn't work or it hasn't worked. There's some sort of block. And so I find that usually there's a lot of, a lot of trust has to be built before somebody is willing to start actually discussing and bringing down those internal blocks, especially if it's not their idea to do coaching in the begin with. Mm-hmm. Are you working that into your business model at all that um, like you establish these relationships with these firms, but then y- you are looking to the these next gen financial advisors to be the ones who are wanting coaching? Yeah, a lot of times whenever I go into these firms, my approach to them has been, hey, I'd love to work with your next gen financial advisors as opposed to your senior wealth advisors. The reason why is because my experience has been that these next gen financial advisors are looking to get coaching because I'm finding that these advisors are so open to feedback. Cool. Because they want to get better. They want to serve their clients better. They want to grow a book of business. And so a lot of times they're looking at coaching as an investment in them and also investment in their future income. And all of those things are now an investment in the business. And a lot of them are trying to become partners. And so they have a vested interest in seeing themselves succeed because it sees the business succeed and then they as a whole. And so I do, I approach, approach generally the CEOs or the, the leadership to coach those type of adv- those next gen advisors. And they're, they're definitely open to those conversations, but there's some that are not. And then do you just give them the space to not be open to it? And yeah. sort in a way. Yeah. It's because you it's meet hard them to f- where they are. We, I was just talking to my mom about, she's always practiced and, and taught, you know, we have to meet people where they are and I'm still learning how to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to be a little pushy. <laughs> uh, I try to meet them where they're at. It's like, look, I get it. You don't know who I am. You're being forced into this conversation. What would be helpful for you to talk about? Yeah. Like what is helpful right now? And a lot of times like, I don't know, da, da. And so then it just becomes a question of, well, what are you working on right now? Is there anything that would be really helpful just to have somebody that you could bounce ideas off of? And I find that just framing it to, I could be a sounding board and then trying to, because with coaching, my belief is that with coaching, they have the answers inside of them. I am just them there to kind of help let them, them find them, help them find them, let them go. Cause there's so many times in which you talk with a peer, you talk with some, anybody and you're trying to tell them what's going on. And we have a propensity just to go immediate into like advice mode mm-hmm. and say, well, this is what you should do. And, da, da, da. and, and why that can be helpful that may not be what they're looking for. And so as a coach, it could a lot of times be the first time they've actually had somebody just not talk. 
It's also like the, I'm thinking of this, uh, you know, teach a man to fish whole whatever that <laughs> little saying is. And when when a coach can help someone learn to find their own answers within themselves, they're really setting them up with tools to be successful for life and in all areas of their life. So that's awesome. And I guess one just kind of simple question that you've already touched on, but any other tips on how to go about building trust? I think it comes back to the vulnerability and authenticity. I really do. I think about, I was getting my hair cut not too long ago and the person that was cutting my hair asked me how my weekend was. And I, and I told them it was this, I don't know, like, what'd you do? And I was like, I did this and X, Y, and Z. And I, and I shared and I did all this. And so I asked them back, I said, what about you? You know, how was your weekend? What'd y'all get into? And they didn't want to share. So I just, I just, I don't really want to talk about it. I was like, okay. And it was kind of weird, but I was like, okay. <laughs> and then next question from them was, do you need travel this summer coming up? And I was like, oh yeah, we're doing X, Y, and Z. We're going to go see, you know, Kate's family and share all this stuff. Cause they asked main conversation and I asked them, I was like, what about you? Any travel? I was like, no, no, I don't really want to talk about it. I, I traveled before. I don't really want to, I don't really want to talk about it. Wow. And so after getting shut down twice, after <laughs> me, me, me sharing, not necessarily like a vulnerable moment, but just sharing, being open in general, being open in general, and then asking them to kind of reciprocate that back and them not the next set of questions that they, they continue to ask me about me and my life became very and I think I just did it subconsciously, but we're very like short to the point, not expressive, not really revealing. And, you know, it just was like, meh, kind of a thing. And so I think that with that, in order to build relationships, like you've got to be willing to share. Mm -hmm. Otherwise people are going to find others who are willing to share if you're not. Yeah. I kind of want to talk to you about Austin for a bit because, man, this city has changed quite a lot in the seven years that you've been here. Uh, and I don't want to be one of those downers that complains about it because, you know, you got to embrace change. Change is cool. Um, I'll tell you one thing that I've, I've done differently since being to Austin than I would have done differently from a prior life. Um, and that is around health. Mm. I think... Austin does a really good job of making health and the outdoors and everything else that comes with it available. Nice. And whenever I think about health, I don't think about just like exercising. I think about meditation. I think about food as medicine. I think about presence and I don't know, some of these other kind of like more Eastern medicine mm -hmm. type practices around health. I think that comes out with Austin pretty well. Beautiful. And I think that is shaping a lot of what Austin has to offer and how it's becoming different from a lot of big cities. Have you explored things like uh, meditation and Eastern medicine and applied them to your own life? I actually have, and I never thought I would. So I have an autoimmune disease. It's called Hashimoto's. It's not an uncommon autoimmune disease. Is that a thyroid? It is a issue? thyroid. Yeah. It is mainly common in 
women who are between the ages of like 40 and 60. Which is not you. Which is not me. <laughs> um, and so I think it's funny that, that I have Hashimoto's, but my, my experience with Hashimoto's really started once again with Austin in the sense that like it's so, Austin's a big like bicycle cycling city and like running and all of that. And so I got into doing triathlons and while getting into doing triathlons, I also ended up, well, I didn't have a baby, but my wife and I decided to have a baby and Good she's to the give one. give her the credit for that. She's the one who had the baby. And I remember at one point we were talking, I said, you know, I'd really like to do an Ironman triathlon. And for those of you who are not aware of what an Ironman triathlon is, it is a 2.4 mile swim followed by, I think it's a 112 mile bike. And then you do a marathon and all of this is back to back and you have to do it within 24 hours. And I've always wanted to do one. I just, I love doing really dumb, hard things. <laughs> um, Put that on your website. <laughs> yeah. What do you do? Well, what gets me up every day is doing really dumb, hard things like an Ironman. And so I told her this, that I want to do an Ironman. She's like, well, you know, whenever we have a baby and I get pregnant, you should start training for an Ironman because I'm not going to want to do anything while, while I'm pregnant. And that's not necessarily true because she definitely was very active and wanted to do stuff while she's pregnant. But that was the mindset at the time. I was like, great idea. <laughs> and so I come home one day from like a business trip and she's all smiling and like has a shirt and is like, we're pregnant. You're doing an Ironman. Um, not, that's not necessarily how she said it, but it was more like we're pregnant we were all like excited. And then once like the excitement died off, she's like, now you got to do that Ironman, huh? Yeah. I was like, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that. Um, so I did the, did the Ironman, but prior to that, I had this amazing mentor, an older gentleman named Bo at work. And he's, he asked me, he said, Hey, have you, when's the last time you got a physical? And I was like, I don't know, like high school. And he says, he was like, you're a grown man who's about to have a baby. Go get a physical, <laughs> like have some responsibility. Okay. So, okay, Bo. And so I went and I got a physical and they, it was a crazy physical. I didn't even, I thought I was just getting, physicals have changed since <laughs> high school. They hooked me up to like, like an EKG, like machine and like do this like sonogram stuff on me and like had me walk on a treadmill, took all this blood wow. work, asked cool. me all these questions. And then they're like, yeah, I'll come back and see us in six weeks and we'll review your blood work. So I show up and I learned, I learned two things. First thing I learned was numbers can be manipulated and used mm. to tell a story. So they ask you, how many drinks do you have every week? And I was honest. I was a traveling salesperson entertaining. And <laughs> they're like, yeah, your chance of heart disease is like 1000% more than anybody else's. Jeez. And that doesn't have the same amount of alcohol. And I'm like, geez, like it's not really like that much. <laughs> you know, I don't have like a problem. And then she, then the doctor tells me, he's like, well, it really has to do with the numbers. Like you've literally gone from like a 0.0001% chance of heart disease to like 0 0.002. Like, like literally it increased like one tenth of one tenth, but because numbers, you can frame it as like, yeah. that's at the time she's like, it's like a thousand percent increase. And I'm like, Oh, so turns out it didn't change my behavior. I'm fine. So 
But what I also realized too is though, is my thyroid number was elevated. And I guess, I can't remember what the exact numbers are anymore, but your thyroid number is supposed to be between like a one and a four. And I guess whenever it's out of four, that's when they want to start putting you on medication. At the time that I did this blood test, I think it was like at a 4.6. And so they're just like, nothing, it doesn't, like everything else is fine. Like you're actually like super, like you're a normal, healthy human being, except for this one weird thyroid number. It could just be something you ate. Come back in three months, retest your blood. Well, I didn't. I went and did the Ironman and then came back six months later, finally tested my blood work. They called me up. She's like, there's something majorly wrong. You should come in and talk to me. So I came back in and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, what's going on? Good thing I got that physical bow. Mm-hmm. And um, she shows me my my thyroid number and it's gone from this like 4.5, whenever four is already troublesome to like a 96. And I don't Holy. know, like, I don't know what like the scale <laughs> is. Like, I guess in theory, maybe you can go to a infinity. I have no idea, but 96 was bad. Yeah. And she's just like, you're the worst thyroid case I've seen in like a decade. I have no idea how you like get out of bed. And she's like, are you not tired? And I was like, yeah, but so is like, everybody's tired. Right. Like, you know, of course I'm tired. Trained for an Ironman. She's like, okay. She's like, well, do you not think it's weird that you lost like literally two pounds doing an Ironman? And I was like, okay, yeah, that is actually kind of weird because it's not like I was like some like super in shape person. I probably honestly had about, I sort of expected to lose about 10 or 15 pounds doing the Ironman and I literally lost two. And so he's like, okay, that's weird. She's like, yeah, you're in severe hypothyroidism. So Hmm. your body is like super slow. You should be very sluggish, have a ton of brain fog and gaining weight out of control. But the only reason why you're not gaining weight out of control is because you doing all this cardio work. I was like, yeah, that that actually makes a lot of sense. She's like, how much coffee do you drink? Mm -hmm. I was like, well, before I get to work, probably 24 to 32 ounces. And then I get into work and I have another cup of about eight to 12 ounces. And then I have another cup, some point around 3 PM. And then I fall asleep on my couch at like 9 PM because I'm exhausted. <laughs> and she's like, okay. And so through all this like discovery, she's like, yeah, things are really bad. Your thyroid is like shutting down, but also your antibody numbers, which should be less than 60 platelet or whatever count were like at nearly 500. Mm. And so my body was like shutting down my thyroid and all this energy was being expended by my body attacking itself. And you didn't even notice. I had no idea. Well, I mean, like I was tired, but I mentioned like everybody's tired. Right. right? And so I go. And so my wife, Kate's in the room as she's talking to me all about this. And I'm like, okay, so what do I got to do? And she's like, well, there's nothing you can do. It's going to shut down your thyroid. And you're just gonna have to take this synthetic thyroid thyroid pill for the rest of your life. And that's like the only thing that's gonna change in your life. Oh my God, I've heard that from doctors before. I know, and in my mind, I'm sitting there going, I'm like, man, if we were, if we were on the Oregon Trail, like you remember that old computer game? Oh yeah. If we were on the Oregon Trail, like I would die. Like I wouldn't make it past like like the first city. Like wouldn't even make it to the river crossing at the end. I would already be gone. And so she's like, I just take this pill. I was like, awesome, take this pill, that's it. Kate, I was like, no, we should probably go see like an Eastern medicine type, holistic type doctor. And I was like, okay, fine. I guess I'll do that. And, and I wouldn't have been open to that had it not been for living in Austin being kind of being surrounded by like that, that Mm -hmm. mentality of people. I'm not saying that it's only here, but 
I've lived in a few places and this is really the only place that I was like, oh, I should like do meditation and think about food as medicine. And anyway, so we go and see this gentleman. His name's Ron, Dr. Ron. And he's fantastic. He's got like these beaded bracelets. He's like a shaman healer. Wow. Totally way out of my comfort zone from anything I've ever been exposed to. And he did like muscle testing where he'd like put a supplement on my chest and see if he could like knock my arm down. In my mind, he even adjusted. He's like, you think I'm full of crap? And I was like, yeah, but I'm paying you. So <laughs> like help me, Yeah, you know, kind of a thing. So long story short, he essentially says, you know, food is medicine. And if we cut these foods out of your diet, you take these supplements. I don't think I can keep you from losing your thyroid, but I can at least slow it down. Wow. And now it's been about five years. At first, he took me off of gluten, corn, soy, oats, and dairy. I'm now just don't do gluten and I don't do soy. But I've gotten my thyroid number down to below four and my antibody number, which is the most troublesome one that's like hard to move that is now below 30 and so awesome at this point my my western medicine doctor would is in a position to be able to say it's either in remission but they never say remission they just say we misdiagnosed you whereas my eastern medicine doctor is like no we we put it in remission that's awesome so i had a somewhat similar experience just in terms of basically the nonsense when back in let's see it must have been like 2007 i was having severe abdominal pain every single day and it was getting to the point where like i just couldn't do anything i couldn't hang out with my friends i was in so much pain and it lasted like a year and i went to a gastroenterologist you know who's supposed to be a specialist in this type of thing and they did every kind of test you know cameras and every part of my body and all that good stuff and at the you know when i came out of the first procedure where they were doing all these tests he's like well we couldn't find anything wrong with you so just take this pill every day for the rest of your life and i was like it doesn't really sound like a solution like it seems like we should figure out what's causing this problem and fix that and he was like no 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 lots of people have this problem like it's normal, like normal. Okay. <laughs> and then I had like a three week period and had to go back in for the follow up after they got whatever results back. And during that three week period, I was so desperate. And one of my friends was just like, have you ever tried cutting out gluten? I was like, what the hell is gluten? I'd never heard of it back then, you know? And uh, it's like, I'll try anything. So I tried cutting it out and all my pain went away, all of it. Wow. So I go back to this appointment three weeks later and the guy's like, well, you know, these additional test results came back. We still can't find anything wrong with you. And I said, actually, I figured out what it is. I cut out gluten and all of my pain went away. And he looked at me and he goes, no, I don't think that's it. And I'm just like, dude, do I get my money back? Like, what the hell? <laughs> that's, that's not cool. <laughs> so I, uh, it's difficult for me to trust doctors very much <laughs> because I feel like they don't know what they're talking about. And another thing I'll actually share um, on the topic of meditation, and I do want to share some kind of disqualifiers or disclaimers on this, but back in uh, college, I guess, I was struggling with depression and anxiety and was on various psychiatric medications for it. And um, 
there there's some additional details I won't go into, but I, my doctor had put me on some medication and then I started meditating or I learned about, I was introduced to meditation and I was very uh, inspired by what I learned and what I learned about mind and how we can learn to train our minds. And so I went back to her and my, you know, whatever, all of the young arrogance I had. And I was like, I'm going to start meditating and get off my medication. And she was like, well, that's really nice, like sweet idea, but that's not how it works. And, you know, people with your situation actually have to stay on this medication their whole life. And, you know, you just need to kind of like mentally prepare yourself for that. And I was just like, no, watch me. Like, you, yeah. you, you may know me well enough already to know that like someone tells me I can't do something. I'm like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I needed to hear to like 100% ensure that I am going to do this thing. Um, and I started meditating. And I think about six months later after meditating regularly, I had reached a place of like mental stability, basically, and um, calmness. And I also through what I started to learn about mind um, and then directly experience through the practice of meditation, it also completely changed the way I viewed everything and the way that I viewed the things that were causing me like emotional pain and stress. It wasn't even possible for them to cause that anymore because of the way my perspective had changed. so anyway, I was able to get off my medication. And the, the one disclaimer I do want to say is like, this is, you know, something that people should do um, thoughtfully. And um, there are certain types of meditation that can be useful for things like anxiety. And there are others that are um, actually counterproductive. So you want to make sure you know what you're doing and probably have someone working with you to, you know, keep you safe. Um, but I, I was able to go off my medication. I was the happiest I'd ever been in my life. Um, I felt like I was just, I mean, my family was like, wow, she's really doing well and really happy. We've never seen her this happy before. And my doctor actually called me about a year later and she was like, could you tell me what you did? Because I've never seen anything like this before. (laughs) I was just like, I started meditating and she's like, "Um, you're gonna have to explain that a little more. (laughs) So <laughs> what is meditation? Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, you know, I had my own firsthand experience that it is extremely powerful tool for healing in any way. Um, and yeah, like I said, you, you, you got to go into it with some caution and intent and mindfulness and, and know what you're doing because anytime you get into mental health issues, there's dangers and risks. So I just want to kind of put that disclaimer out there that it can be extremely effective if you know what you're doing. So I encourage people to figure out ways to go about learning things that can be useful um, for dealing with those types of issues. But, and it, and you know, it ends up helping everything. Not only does it help, you know, lower stress and anxiety, uh, but then also like increases creativity. Uh, it's amazing how much creativity can just flow out of you once you've figured out how to calm your mind down. So do you practice meditation too? Has that been part of your path? It's off and on, and I wish I was more dedicated to it. Actually, you've encouraged me to do it, and I have started to. And I look back on that, and I think that I've actually been more creative with some of my writing ever since I started meditating again, so I can see the benefits there. That's awesome. But it is something that I'm working into to what I'm doing and trying to 
be pretty pretty consistent with it. Cool. I love um, getting to hear from people that you know don't come from this background where things like meditation or Eastern medicine are things that they were interested in. But you know, people that come from this very um, what's the word like modern, I guess, uh, perspective and point of view. And, you know, it's like, got to make money, got to achieve these goals and all these things. And then to recognize how much a tool like meditation can actually help you achieve any goal in any aspect of your life uh, is super cool. And there's so many just great examples of people who have shown that. And it's really cool to see that emerging like in the popular media or whatever. Um, so many different great examples in the world today. Yeah. And I think one of the things, because I started getting into meditation probably about three or four years ago, and I was, one of the things that's helped me with meditation too, is just changing the app that I meditate with every year. Oh, cool. You have an app. Mm -hmm. So I use Headspace right now. I used Calm. And then before that I used Insight Timer. And just like when working with even a coach, it's good to work with you know, a coach for some amount of time and then go and work with another coach. There's just different perspectives around like guided meditation. And it's really interesting to like get that from, you know, one app versus the other. And it's kind of kept meditation, I don't know, fresh for me. That is awesome. Very cool. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually in a phase of my life right now where I, um, I got into some kind of rut or I got kind of stuck and uh, I needed to find something to make meditation feel fresh again. And so I really appreciate that uh, comment altogether. And there are ways to do it, to, to make it feel fresh again. So fun. Whew. All right. Well, Clayton, is there anything else you want to talk about before no. we wrap this up? This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. Cool. Well, let's let people know where they can find out about you and your work. Yeah. So... As you mentioned earlier, Ring the Bell Coaching is my company. The website's ringthebellcoaching.com. You can find me on LinkedIn, Clayton F. Boone. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter, RTB Coach. And get in touch with me through the website, through email. There's a, a really cool newsletter and really just happy to be here. Awesome. Well, wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing. I know it's going to take off and be awesome because you're just a phenomenal guy. So. Oh man, you're, you're so kind <laughs> right now. We're, I'm pretty happy with where it's at, but cool. every once in a while I'm like, whoa. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the shine freely podcast. We have new conversations every week that you can find on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out my blog and information about executive coaching at shinefreely.com.